I am a six foot six Chinese woman, and you cannot tell me otherwise because that is my truth. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Wikipedia podcast. I am Kyle, joined as ever by Micah Sample. And who who's that in the middle? Do we have Sam is back? Oh, that that's great. Uh Sam, we're excited to have you back after a few weeks of moving and transition. Although I you're not quite done yet, are you? No, actually today was the the last day we closed on the house. I, I do have to <laughs> I'm at my at my parents right now. So kind of stopped here. We do have to drive three hours and get the last load off. But let me tell you, one thing I have learned about moving: I have way too much junk. Thanks for having. I, I, I'm, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. <laughs> it's good to have you uh, back. We're excited man. to have you back on. Yeah. Well, let's jump straight into today's subject on the radio program. If you have not listened to it, you need to go listen to it. Uh, we got a chance to interview. Dr. Bill Roach about standpoint epistemology. Now we're going to continue that subject uh, by having some deeper discussions with him about standpoint epistemology and talking about some of the practical outcomes of that. You don't need to have seen the radio episode, but it does build off of and expand that idea. So we do highly recommend that you watch both. Now, Let's jump straight into the interview with Dr. Bill Roach. So on the radio program, we got a chance to interview Bill Roach. And uh, as we already mentioned here on the podcast, we're going to get some more time to talk with him about the, uh, the boogeyman word of standpoint epistemology, or I should say phrase. Uh, and we're going to dive into a little bit more about how this plays out. Now, if you haven't listened to the radio program, go listen to it. If not, we're going to still cover the, the basics here. But again, we want to go more into the, the application because, again, this is the, the – well, let, let, let's use a medical analogy. You have symptoms and then you have a disease, a root cause. Wokeness is a symptom. Standpoint epistemology is one of its main root causes. So we're going to explore that. Uh, so Dr. Bill Roach, again, is with us. And Bill, brief uh, rundown of what standpoint epistemology is for anyone that did not listen to the radio program. So for those who didn't listen to the radio program, standpoint epistemology finds its origins in – it was coined by Dr. James Lindsay. But what it's trying to do is it's trying to argue that there are oppressors and there are people who are oppressed. And based upon the number of boxes you can check for being oppressed – so it, oppression could be something like being a female in a male world. It could be being a homosexual in a heterosexual world. It could be 
a Muslim and a Christian world and all these different religious and, and gender and sociological things that could, quote, make somebody oppressed. They give you different, quote, insights into lowercase r reality. And it's not like there's a reality that people actually see, but it's this idea that we have these different perspectives that we're manufacturing different readings of reality. And if you're not a person who's part of that victim class and checked all of the boxes, it's your job to sit there and listen and to be educated and re-educated about what you think the world should be and how it actually functions. So if you're a white Western male, you only see reality with one color. And we use the analogy that to a hammer, everything is a nail. So for a white man who's the oppressor, they write laws according to that color. They they make school codes according to that. They make math problems according to it. And they need to be undone because they're oppressive in some way, shape, or form. So what standpoint epistemology is, it's a form of relativism, subjectivity, perspectivalism. And we can give all these different terms to say this. Truth is dead in the streets, and everybody's willing their own interpretation of reality. Yep, yep. Uh, I really liked the analogy that uh, you used, and then we went back to in the radio program, which was the... Uh, and it works for other sports besides baseball, but baseball where you have you have the different umpires and they're all watching the same play. Reality, uh, if they're they're looking for actual truth, they all agree on on the same things that a ball is thrown and that something there's a result of that, and their job is to say what happens, corroborate. If they do not see clearly, corroborate between their different views to get down to the truth of the play, uh, as much as people then get upset with them and call them, uh, say that they were wrong. But standpoint epistemology is all the umpires disagreeing why they're even there uh, with one saying that a ball wasn't thrown when reality says that a ball was thrown and one saying that he's uh, refing a basketball game because that's his perspective and his truth. They're, um, they're, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, you, you can go. I thought I thought I caught a break there. My bad. <laughs> I wanted to build off of that analogy a little bit. There is this old joke that used to actually use a baseball analogy, and it talked about how the different eras of philosophy can be understood. And it said something like this. A pre-modern baseball umpire would have said something like this. There's balls and there's strikes, and I call them as they are. The modernist one would have said there are balls and strikes, and I call them as I see them. And the postmodernist umpire would have said they ain't nothing until I call them. Do we see the difference? <laughs> what actually corresponds to reality? One, reality doesn't even exist until you call it as you want it to be. And that's really the difference. That's one of the key issues is that classical realism has historically argued like the individual who is pre-modern, that there are balls and there are strikes, and I call them as they are. They correspond to reality, whereas now there is no corresponding reality. It's however you manufacture it from your perspective, whether that be a mm -hmm. feminist 
reading, a queer reading, a black liberation reading, or any other category that you want to use to explain it. Yeah. And again, I hope, I hope uh, everyone listening can see immediately. It just peaks in their mind. Oh, that sounds like critical race theory. That sounds like modern feminism. That sounds like, uh, you know, the, what is a woman, uh, all the different things that are going on. That sounds like these, that's because it is exactly now we're Wikipedia here. We're, you know, we made a film enemies within the church, all about wokeness, which is a broad term, uh, to kind of categorize all of these different things. Uh, and that's what are we concerned about? Wokeness infiltrating the church. How, how does something, how does subjectivity enter into the church? Because we have a book of truth and not, again, to use the, the format we've been going, it's capital T truth. It is objective, unchanging. It is the Bible. It is God's word. So how do they jump from this objective, unchanging, eternal standard to perspectives and subjectivity? Well, it's interesting. I don't see how it's even possible. It's interesting because there was a book that was put out titled Evangelical Hermeneutics. And in that book, it was actually put out by two professors at the Master's Seminary a number of years ago. And they argued about the different types of hermeneutics that are out there. They really called one sort of a, a pre-Heideggerian and sort of a post-Heideggerian. And Heidegger was a, a 20th century philosopher. And it was the difference between objectivity and subjectivity. And it's sort of in this post sort of post-objective approach, you started to see it infiltrate into our schools through hermeneutics, the, the classes where we're being taught how to actually read the Bible. So here's an interesting thing about this is that there was a video that was put out uh, maybe a decade ago, and it was actually put out by the Gospel Coalition, and Tim Keller was on there, D.A. Carson, and John Piper were in the video. And they were talking about the differences between preachers that that existed sort of growing up with them and sort of preachers today. And they're really mainly saying younger preachers. And you'll see where I'm going with this, see the application. And they said, you know, we didn't have these incredibly elaborate hermeneutics classes. Preaching wasn't, quote, as difficult as it is today. But now they've got all of these different hermeneutical things that they're so concerned about that you don't have this, quote, thus saith the Lord. But here's the interesting thing is that the new guys that they were talking about were in many respects being infiltrated by Heidegger and Gadamer and Derrida and Wittgenstein, which are the philosophical underpinnings by which we get this this idea of idealistic, which is non-realist in the history of philosophy, or postmodernism. Now, here's the interesting thing about the analogy that I give from Gospel Coalition and those figures, is that they 
10 years ago argued against a lot of the modern approaches because it stole the power of the pulpit. But you fast forward to now, they're all doing critical race theory. It's a rose by any other name is still a rose. Idealistic subjectivity is still idealistic subjectivity, whether you 10 years ago call it the young preacher boys approach or today you buy into it by critical race theory and all the different subjectivities and the will to power. So it came through their hermeneutics classes. And I've argued for years that the difference between this modern approach to hermeneutics that most evangelicals have bought into. In fact, go pick up virtually any hermeneutics textbook that's out there, and I can almost guarantee each one of them are going to give you all of these different layers of meaning and historical conditions and all of these different bridges that you have to gap. And they're going to say, you'll never cross them. You're always going to be left in a hermeneutical spiral or hermeneutical circle. There's no validating universal paradigms. There's no objectivity. So there's really a difference of degree versus a difference of kind. Difference of degree is something where if you have a small circle and a big circle, well, what's the difference? One of degree or just size. Whereas what's the difference between a circle and a square well, it's one of kind because no matter how many sides you add to that square, it may approximate a circle, but it never actually becomes a circle. So where did your kids get it from? Where did your pastor get it from? Where did that cranky guy sitting around at your Thanksgiving table get it from? Well, if he went to an evangelical school, he most likely picked it up from his hermeneutics department, and he's brought it back to all of these different places. And what's ironic about it is, is that He's trying to do what his teacher taught him was, quote, good hermeneutics. But it's actually just sort of a very historically naive approach. It's a very historically uh, relegated approach to the late 20th century. And if you look at the history of Protestant interpretation and the history of philosophy, it is a postmodern hermeneutic that took place after the linguistic turn of postmodernism. So we could dive into a lot mm -hmm. of that, but that's where they got it from. They got it from your standard hermeneutical spirals and hermeneutical circles. And these are buzzwords within our evangelical hermeneutics today. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it, it makes me so specifically as someone who has a passion for the the misunderstood, the confusing, the uh, avoided passages of the Old Testament and loves preaching on them, bringing life to them and teaching people through that how you approach God's word. It's so frustrating and sad to me to see that that's exactly what we're destroying. Instead of elevating the beauty of God's word, the truth contained in there, we're telling people you can't get to that. Exactly. And, oh, well, it's interesting because the way that I mean, we, you know, that they're going to get to is they're going to say, well, there, there is no bird's eye view on these matters. You are, you are so conditioned from your perspective. And I go, actually, we do have a bird's eye view. It's called the God's eye view, who is the ultimate interpretation. <laughs> so the basis for all truth is God who is truth. And that God mm -hmm. can reveal himself 
in propositional form, which is a truth statement. And that revelation in propositional form is the Bible in and of itself. So think of it in this sense. You have the God of all truth who made beings in his image. They reflect him rationally as creatures who can understand not only what God is in the sense of he is a being that has these attributes, but they can also understand what God has revealed. And now, do I understand things the way God understands them? No, obviously God is an infinite being and he understands things in an infinite way. And I'm a finite being and I understand them in a finite way. But a finite understanding of truth doesn't mean that I have non-truth. It just means I have a limited understanding of true truth. But what these people are trying to say is if you don't understand at all and have this God's eye perspective, then you can't know anything. Well, just think about that. Mm -hmm. There's only one being that could ever know truth according to that perspective, and it would have to be God. So literally, you would have to transform yourself into being God in order to make any propositional statement at all that can be understood or interpreted and all the rest. They're claiming too much. In fact, that would be idolatry at its core. It would be distinctly counter-Christian to affirm such a thing. But let's go even further. Let's, you know, we want to be Christians in our approach to this. So we realize that there's a God who is there and there's a God who can speak. That's very much a, a Schaeferian idea for the reason that we don't want to put sort of this, this mask over the mouth of God. God has revealed his personal privacy, namely who he is and the doctrine of salvation and much more in propositional form. But People say, well, we're all so different. We all, you know, you have people from Africa and America and Europe and Asia. And I go, well, those are differences and there are real cultural differences between the different ones. But what's the, the two key things that we have that are manifestly more in common than that? First of all, we're all human beings. We have the same nature. We're all human beings and we all are of the descendants of Adam in that regard. But even more than that, we're all made in the image of God. You have something yep. that's transcultural, transracial, level at not only the playing field, but level at the foot of the cross that allows for you to have this universal validating paradigm. And that's exactly what classical Christian approaches have taught. The reason that God can reveal himself to all peoples in the Bible is because the God of truth made people in his image able to know God's world and God's word, and he's given them the faculties to rightly interpret both his word and his world. So this whole approach yep. is a fundamental attack on the nature of God, the nature of being made in the image of God, and the doctrine of revelation, and the doctrine of creation that we can actually know God's world. So in that sense, it's a full-on assault on all of those, but it's also a full-on assault on the God who reveals, the Son who promises, and the Spirit that inspires. It's an attack on literally every aspect of the Christian faith if pressed to its logical end. Boy, you're, you're going for the throat there, and I love it because it does. It undermines... People have been taught to compartmentalize things. 
to take things and put them in their little boxes and not see how they interact with something else. But that's not how reality works. Everything is webbed together. You can't pluck one string without it reverberating and having other consequences. Now, either the Bible is a book of truth delivered by God for all people at all times in all places, or it is not, and it is useless. There is no in-between. And in fact, the second that you remove uh, that universal objectivity and truth of the Bible, you've removed God. Because that is how we know God. That is how we know who he is. This is why uh, we'll talk about the woke and them shifting their worship off of God and onto diversity or onto different, uh, quote, diverse groups. And they're shifting from God to worshiping man is because you have no choice. You brought that out in what you said. But I want to go and connect that, connect it all the way to they're not just undermining who God is who each member of the Trinity is, what God's word is, and in that they're undermining the gospel. But they're replacing, you cannot have, you have to have something there. And what they're putting in the spot of God is man. Now, unlike in other points of history where it was self-worship, elevating of oneself uh, it is other worship. It is worshiping some other person, at least if you rank too low on the uh, intersectionality chart. So you have to worship someone who's more oppressed than you. But you have to have something there. You have to have something as your ultimate source of truth. Even if you believe in standpoint epistemology, you have to have an ultimate source of truth. And for woke people, it is whoever is above them on the uh, chart of oppression. Yeah, it's interesting because everything, according to the woke, is historically conditioned and racially read and all these things, except their books and their literature that they expect everybody outside of their race and their gender to understand uh. object with an objective sense, employ in an objective way into their human resources, a.k.a. their kingdom diversity programs, by which they, they police these matters. It's literally the whole idea is that what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. They're going to be consistent. Nobody should be able to read any of their books at any given time. That's why I've always kind of joked that if I ever debated one yep. of these guys, <laughs> I would just ask this simple question in the very beginning. If any of you or something, I would make a claim like this. If any of you actually understand what this individual is saying, who's so radically different than any person in this room, you've actually proven my point. Because if he's right, you're going to yep. literally hear nothingness. But if he's wrong, then you're going to actually hear what he's trying to say. It's a self-defeating whole, whole epistemology 
and approach to, mm-hmm. to what they're trying to do. But it's interesting because there are real dire consequences for this. I mean, we understand what the gospel is. And, you know, if we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, it's, you know, Jesus Christ, he was he died, he was buried, and he rose again. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose again. But if if this whole approach is true, think about what that does to our ability to understand those three types of prop or those three propositions. Is it just your perspective that Jesus Christ died for our sins? Is it just your reading that he was buried and rose again? How does that affect preaching? You know, the Bible was not written in the 20th century by a bunch of woke people. It was, or even white people. It was written literally thousands of years ago. And according to their approach, it's locked in time and it's not useful for today because those propositions can't be transcultural and we're not Jewish. Mm-hmm. At least most of us aren't, at least I'm not. And how am I supposed to understand it? That's a different racial perspective that comes about with it. It literally puts a complete muzzle on the mouth of God to speak through his word. And that's what, if you look at it, that's what it's done to a lot of these social justice churches. You know, there are degrees of it within broad churches. You know, some are worse than others, but think of the, the groups that actually buy into this whole, whole, in a whole sense, um, Look at what their church services are like. You know, you've got groups at Princeton now praying these lament prayers to the animals for eating them and the plants for eating them all these years. But what's to stop the evangelical church from going down that? What what does Paul say in Romans 1? They're replacing worshiping again. They're replacing worshiping the creator with worshiping the creation. And like I mentioned, the only major difference between how it's been historically expressed and how it's being expressed now is it's it's maintaining this aspect of I have to worship something outside of myself. I'm not elevating myself. I'm going to worship men. I'm going to worship another. Uh, well, I guess I can't say m- men when I'm referring to what they're talking about. I have to worship worship another. The Apostle person. Paul gives us a, a really good way uh, of talking about it: having the form of godliness and yet denying its power. Boom! Exactly. Uh, I, I, it's it's really hard for me to wrap my head around how someone could claim to be a Christian or just someone in general could hear these, hear these kind of claims, this this postmodernism, this subjectivity, uh, that they're, you know, we cannot know truth. It's like our battle isn't just against flesh and blood, but it's like against the principles and powers of this dark world. It's a spiritual battle and, and there's blinders that come to it. And, you know, I think there are a good way of understanding it is the classic book, The City of God, 
we are battling the city of man versus the city of God. And we know ultimately the city of God will triumph, but there's a lot of blindness that can come about with it. And we could even bring it into a modern mm -hmm. day expression of it. Um, I think everybody is familiar with Francis Schaeffer and his book, The Great Evangelical Disaster, talks about the, quote, existential method and what it did to 20th century theology. This is existential, the existential method with just a few extra steps added on to it. They added gender, race, and more oppression to it. It's virtually the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And Schaefer gives us this idea. He says, you know, truth demands confrontation, loving confrontation, but confrontation nonetheless. And that's where we're at today is that – yeah. You know, I would rather be divided by the truth than united by the air. And I do not have the time nor the patience to listen to somebody play these games with the word of God and peddle the word of God and the great truths of the Christian faith and remain in the same church or in the same denomination as somebody with it. And Schaefer was very correct that when we come to the point in which there is no possible means of correction either at a denominational level or an ecclesiastical level or seminary level or whatever level we want we have to by conviction separate from these kinds of things and you know jesus says mm -hmm. that we are not to put a light under a bushel but to display it and i think we're putting a light under a bushel under a bowl or something if we're going to remain in these we need to let the the light of god's word shine forth and be very bold with this and call it for what it is. We need to quit. Amen. Uh, to, I'm going to steal a phrase from J.I. Packer. It sounds like a dirty word today, but if J.I. Packer said it, it has to be has to be right. He said, people need to stop pussyfooting around, which is like a cat. You ever seen like a cat, the old term for it? They step on things like, oh, oh, oh. That's how people have treated this whole movement. Now call a spade a spade. Call it for what it is. Don't be afraid of it. Separate if you have to, but stand up for mm -hmm. God's truth. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we believe God is who he claimed he is, if we believe the gospel is what the Bible claims it is, if we believe that there is only one way for man to be reconciled to God, then we need to stand for that truth. There is no compromise there. There's no kind of, sort of. I mean, it, it was something I was just thinking about last night is the idea of, that it's gone way too far nowadays of what are the essentials? What are the essentials of the faith that are required for salvation? And in reality, we started to strip away. But to, to, to bring up uh, the quotation from Corinthians that you brought up uh, and to, to expand upon it, what does the Bible say about the essentials, about the, the truth that's required for the gospel? That Christ died according to the scripture. Scripture. And in each, each each statement, it's according exactly. to the scripture. The Bible is necessary. The Bible is absolutely necessary. Nothing is there accidentally and nothing can be taken exactly. away. So 
the second that you play this game of what is the minimum acceptable you are compromising, I... the second that you try to find common ground with people that have a subjective hermeneutic that believe that God is so, and they, they abuse, they're abusing the holiness of God to say that we can never learn anything yeah. about God, that he's so holy, so other, which is true. But then they're saying, well, we can't learn anything about him because of how transcendent say, this truth is. Well, then yeah, God they're going to say, no, 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 that's, that's not that's what I'm doing. And we go, well, what we need to see is whether or not this whole idea is consistent with the premises of your argument, with the, the rationality mm -hmm. of the position that you're giving. Is that if you're going to be advocating subjectivity, give them subjectivity. Be consistent with the subjectivity. But if you're saying, well, th there's a line uh, that I don't go, well, why not? You know, I mean, just because you don't want to go that far doesn't mean that the internal coherence of your position doesn't demand that you go that far. And that's where this whole bait and shift, this is uh, mm -hmm. really what's been known as theological double mm -hmm. speak for all these years. And we could think of it as it applies to higher criticism. You know, oh, I just think higher criticism is a good little tool and it helps us understand this. When the reality is, is that it guts the Bible of any historical truth and propositional truth. So when it comes... Now, can you quickly give people an example of what higher criticism is? Yeah, so not, I mean, a higher criticism in, the, they don't in know. its historic sense was the issue that, you know, say if we're going to look at the Genesis account, say Genesis 1 through 11, oh, these are, you know, they've got all these similarities to all these ancient New Eastern myths, and they borrowed from the pagan gods, and, oh, they may have changed it and modified it, and Moses isn't giving us actual real history, but theological history. And then what happens is you deny the creation account, you deny a historical Adam and Eve, you deny the figures, the historical figures in Genesis 1 through 11. But what that ends up doing is, is that ends up gutting the historical bedrock that's needed for the theological foundations from Genesis 12 to the rest of the Bible. And in a similar sense with these guys is that we realize that you can't have just a little bit of historical criticism. It is truly a, a poison that permeates through one's hermeneutic. Well, you can't just have a little bit of woke hermeneutics either. It's a poison that works its way through. Mm -hmm. So as we push back on it, I think we have to return to the concept of there is true truth. But as Christians, we have two things that can really significantly help us as it pertains to sort of the hermeneutics of it. You know, the, their claim is that there are no particular frameworks of understanding that are universally valid. So there's no perspective that's true for all people at all times and all places. Well, as Christians, we have two key things that are going to, and maybe more, we can come up with more. But first of all, it is the image of God. Like we said, it is a universally valid mm -hmm. framework that is within every individual that trumps culture and it trumps time and it trumps all of these because it's something God has literally cooked into us from the moment of creation. And second of all, we live in God's world and this is God's creation 
and God created us to know reality. Now, has sin affected that? Yes, but it hasn't destroyed reality. It hasn't destroyed man's ability to understand reality. And third, God gave us his word in order to be, as Calvin would have said, the lenses by which we correct our understandings of the external sensible world in that regard. So in every regard, it, like we've said, it's so much of an attack on these key theological truths about a doctrine of creation, a doctrine of being made in the image of God. So in one, it's creation. One, it's our, our anthropology that's under attack and ultimately our doctrine of revelation. It is sort of like the Jenga puzzle. We pulled that one piece out and the whole thing comes tumbling down. And I mean, that is such an important, so that's an important thing for someone who is aware of wokeness and that it is a problem. It's critical for you to understand that, that exactly the, the Jenga analogy is beautiful because as soon as you pull these pieces out, it undermines the structural integrity and it all, the whole tower comes crumbling down. You cannot have a little bit of wokeness. It is a system that you either, you has a logical conclusion. It will take you somewhere. It is not, does not stop. You cannot uh, use it as an exactly. analytical tool. Uh, you'll become an analytical fool, but one thing that I, I want to make clear on that is, again, if you understand wokeness, that's critically important. But let's say you don't fully grasp this or you have a friend who is, as, as uh, Jude would put it, uh, being caused to doubt or even one that needs to be uh, snatched out of the fire. They're not someone who is one of these false teachers, but they're either being caused to doubt by these these woke ideologies or they're, they've bought into them because they don't know better. You need to be able to take them through it and show them. And this is why everything we've been talking about here is critically important because it doesn't stop. It has a logical conclusion. It will take you somewhere. And that is to full wokeness. It will take you out of the gospel out of truth and into a subjective reality that you cannot escape from uh, a false gospel. You need to be able to walk them through that and show them that, Hey, you can't be importing these ideas in. They're not just simply, Oh, well, uh, this interpretation of this biblical story is you uh, here? I was trying to think of an example, and it popped into my mind. David and Bathsheba. Right now, there's a huge kerfuffle about reinterpreting the story to be one about oppression, oppressor, and that David had power, so he, uh, you know, he raped Bathsheba, whether it was consensual or not. And the Bible is irrelevant. What the Bible gives us. It's irrelevant what the Bible claims his sin was. Everything is irrelevant. And that's the main, and that not only is that something that happened, but that is the main point of the story. You can't pull that subjective interpretation of the story and stop there. 
your understanding of the Bible will be undermined because every story will start to become subjective. It's critically important that you be able to explain this to someone that is being pulled in by wokeness and show them that no, 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 no. The Bible is true. God's word is true. God is who he claimed he is. And his word is sufficient. There is an objective interpretation. And though we are fallen human beings, we are finite. We will not get 100% of the truth out of the Bible. We can know it. We are. And I love that you keep bringing up the image of God because the woke use that as an attack on biblical Christianity, when in reality, it's the opposite. It's a defense against wokeness, because if we are made in the image of God, then we can know reality as it is. We can know God. We can know God's word. We can know the gospel and we can trust. Well, let's think about the how the image of God was grounded as a means to recover Christian truths in Augustine. You know, he was living in a, an incredibly subjective age and he gave a distinct grounding, mm. an objective grounding, a stable footing by saying, no, we are maybe influenced by these things, but we're not necessarily determined by these kinds of things because the image of God is greater. But I think we have a greater parallel to this. You know, when we get into the time of the Reformation, there's the difference between how Catholics and Protestants understand the relationship between scripture and tradition. And for a Roman Catholic, whether they'll admit to it or not, they hold to a magisterial understanding of that relationship. Namely, the, the nature of tradition will necessarily determine the reading of scripture versus a Protestant understanding as a ministerial influence upon scripture. It doesn't necessarily determine the way that we must read scripture. Rather, tradition gives us an influence, whether right or wrong, it can correct and it can, can detract from it. But what we find is, is that if you look at how the woke are approaching this, all of these cultural things don't just necessarily influence they necessarily determine. They magisterially determine. Mm -hmm. So how do we have an objective means in the Reformation to get away from it? It was sola scriptura as our authority, but you have the image of God that gives you the ability to understand your highest authority, which is scripture in and of itself. And as it applies to this, Yep. The whether the woke want to admit it or not, they uh, look at all of these oppressive views as the magisterial um, tradition or cultural influence that they might say upon us that keeps us shackled from understanding the word of God. But because we're made yep. in the image of yep. God, we can actually break free from that. So in many ways, the word of God made propositional during the time of the Reformation was ripped from the lectern 
because the image of God and the authority of Scripture allowed it to be from the magisterial influence of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Word of God made flesh was ripped from the grave in the resurrection. And it's time for us to, uh, in many respects, take the Word of God and rip it from the clutches of what the woke are doing. We are made in the image of God that has influence upon our epistemology. And it should affect the way that we approach hermeneutics. And it does affect the way that we preach our Bibles. Wow, that was a rock solid interview there, Kyle, that you had. The only mm. question I have is, are you really a six foot six Chinese woman? <laughs> <laughs> no, I am not because I believe in truth. I believe in God's word and Truth is not subjective or arbitrary, and it does not bend to my standpoint. Amen. Amen. That That is right. Kyle, Kyle, my truth is that you are a six foot six <laughs> Chinese woman, so don't worry. It's still true. Ah, uh, well, we got some work to do on you, Micah. Uh, I guess but... so. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's okay. It's, it's both my standpoint and truth that... Micah is a 12-year-old face with a 50-year-old voice, so uh, that, that, is, that is good to know, as, as some people have claimed before. But no, this really was a great interview. Um, uh, it, it's exciting to see guys like Bill Roach go out there and to stand up for the truth. I'm so glad mm -hmm. that we have guys like Bill Roach. Um, yeah, I mean, what, anything you really want to add to this, this interview here, Kyle? Well, I just want to add that, well, first, we're definitely getting Bill back on the podcast Absolutely. and the radio. Uh, there's a lot of other terms that would be wonderful to have him help break down. But these are important things to know, not because you need to know these big, grand philosophical ideas, but you need to know the, uh, the underpinning of these different woke ideologies. Where does the, the random uh, comment by a woke pastor, where is it rooted in? Because if it's not rooted in God's word, it's rooted somewhere. And standpoint epistemology is one of those important keys to understanding why they're saying the things they are and why they're using the language they are. So it's valuable for you to know that, to know that this isn't coming from some random out of the blue place, but there is a philosophical underpinning, a world view separate from the Bible that has a different view of truth than the Bible. And you need to be aware of these things. Yeah. That's what we hope to be doing here is helping you get aware of those things. Right. And, and one of the things that I really like about going over standpoint epistemology is that it, it really is one of the biggest things that is going, that is going wrong in the church today is that so many people are preaching and teaching standpoint epistemology and what they're doing is, is that they're still using a lot of the same language, of course, uh, of like truth mm -hmm. and things like that. But then they're coming in, you know, sweeping that aside and meaning a different kind of truth. And so it's something that you need to understand, something that you need to put on a discernment filter about. And this is, uh, yep. I mean, this is huge. This is exactly what Crew did with their Lenses Institute. Uh, this is exactly yep. what, um, what, what so many churches uh, are, are going and falling into and pastors are falling for. So I am so glad that you did this interview. Uh, with with uh, Dr. Bill, and it's, I mean, it is just so important that people get equipped with this. Uh, anything you have to add there, mm -hmm. Micah? 
Um, well, I just want to echo off of what you're saying. I mean, this is a huge problem within the church, this idea of standpoint epistemology, the idea that truth is dependent not upon an objective reality that exists out there, but just simply upon your whim. Um, that's something that is being, I mean, it's, it's just, it's wrong. And it's also being, uh, utilized to, uh, promote, uh, critical race theory. It's being used to promote sodomy and homosexual agendas and transgenderist agendas. Um, these are really, really prominent things and they all have their root in this kind of quote unquote knowledge, which isn't knowledge at all. And, um, this is what the Bible warns against when it talks about, um, going and uh, rejecting vain philosophies of men. Um, we're mm -hmm. supposed to stand upon biblical truth, and that's objective truth. So I appreciate uh, what Dr. Bill Roach uh, has said in this interview. I think that this is a very, very important subject, and I'm going to be happy to have him back on in the future. All right. Well, if you want to go into contact and let us know what you think about this interview, now, make sure to fill it with objective truth and not subjective truth. That's what you learned. Go ahead and email <laughs> us at contactwokipedia at gmail.com. And also, if you are interested in sponsoring either our radio show or our podcast, that'd be exciting to go and do. Wouldn't that be neat to hear your company's name promoted right here on this podcast or this radio show? Go ahead and contact us at Wokipedia Media at gmail.com. Did I get that right there, Kyle? Yes, you did. Wikipedia media at gmail.com. All right. Well, guys, that's right. Anything else that I'm forgetting that we need to add? Well, I would just encourage people to uh, subscribe. If you haven't done that, wherever you're getting this podcast. So you, you get the notifications when we release more that you tell people about this, not because we want to grow a fancy audience but because we want to make sure that this is a useful resource that is getting into the hands of those who need to hear it. That is our prayer and that is our hope. And we trust that God is using this for his glory. Uh, give us your prayers. We need prayer. We really right. need prayer. This can be a discouraging fight to be in. So we, we really need those prayers and we need that encouragement. Uh, and beyond sponsors, if you have a valuable ministry that is standing up to wokeness, contact us as, as well at wikipediamedia at gmail.com. We want to learn about solid ministries that are standing up to wokeness uh, that we might be able to partnership with in some form or some way uh, to at least promote one, each, one another because Christians need to know where they can get good biblical resources. That's right. That's right. And then uh, one more thing, guys, uh, I just want to uh, make it clear that uh, while we've talked about experiences and personal lived experiences and things like that as being a part of standpoint epistemology, um, that isn't to say that we don't value experiences here. We value people's experiences and we want to learn from them, but it just means that they have to be rooted in objective truth. So if you exactly. have an experience with a woke individual or a woke um, institution within the church, um, particularly woke leadership. We're not just talking about, you, you know, your fellow layperson necessarily. Um, <laughs> but if you have had experience with a woke church, woke institution, woke pastor, woke leader, um, let us know at contactwokipedia at gmail.com. That is contactwokipedia at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We want to hear these stories. Um, we're trying to build a map um, on our future website that's going to be up 
and uh, we want to have a map of different places so that you know where not to go and where not to trust. Um, ultimately, we want to give you guys that resource. So uh, give us that information and uh, we'll be sure to um, investigate and uh, use it wisely. Well, thank you for listening today. Visit us at enemieswithinthechurch.com. Once again, that's enemieswithinthechurch.com. And go over to the tab and hit Wikipedia up there. Go ahead and visit us today so you can find all of our resources that we have and you can follow us there. But thank you for listening today. Also, give us a five-star review because it's objective truth. This is a five-star program. So go ahead and give us a five-star oh, review. I'm going to have to watch this episode a few more times <laughs> is what Kyle's thinking. But uh, but but seriously, we, we, we do appreciate five stars, maybe some four stars, but nothing less than that. And so uh, go ahead and give us a review there and keep standing for the truth. Who's going to say it? Oh, don't and don't go, go woke. woke. I beat you to it. <laughs>